You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello to you all, and welcome along to another edition of Attaboy Clarence. I'm actually very excited about the trio of movies I have to tell you about later in the show. Three films that twisted me up in knots for all types of reasons. Moral quandaries, dastardly dilemmas, doubts and misgivings. Three movies I wasn't expecting to love as much as I did, all punching well above their weight. You're going to love them. First today, though, a reminder that this weekend, the 20th and 21st of November, is the Attaboy Clarence Film Festival. For a full lineup of what's coming over the weekend, then follow the link in the show notes of this episode. There's some marvellous Golden Age entertainment on the way, starring the likes of... Kay Francis, Peter Cushing, Warren William, Cary Grant, Miriam Hopkins, Gene Simmons... Gary Cooper, Robert Mitchum, Gene Arthur, Steve McQueen, Lionel Barrymore, Edward G. Robinson, Aline McMahon, Betty Davis, Charlie Chaplin, Humphrey Bogart, and many, many more. Saturday the 20th is open to all. Just drop in at any time and you'll find yourself in good company. Sunday the 21st is Patron Day, so if you're signed up at www.patreon.com slash attaboysecret, you'll be receiving your special link this week that'll give you a whole day of extra access. For the full lineup, including times, visit attaboyclarence.com or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Okay, we won't dawdle today. Straight into some movies. First up, something truly gripping for you. 1953's Personal Affair. Starring Gene Tierney, Leo Genn, Glynis Johns, Megs Jenkins, and Pamela Brown. This reminded me very much of films like The Children's Hour, starring Audrey Hepburn, or Poison Pen with Flora Robson. If you like that creeping dread, that delicious sense of doubt you get when you need answers, but they're not coming... You're going to love this. We're in 1950s Britain and Latin teacher Stephen Barlow, played by Leo Genn, is happily married to his American wife Kay, played by Jean Tierney. Stephen is something of a heartthrob to the girls at school and one in particular, Barbara Vining, a young teenager played by Glynis Johns, who seems to have fallen quite in love with him. When she comes to the Barlow's house one evening for extra tuition, Kay, feeling a little bit jealous of Barbara's crush on her husband, decides to say something about it. You think you're in love with my husband, don't you? No, no. Don't say anything. But have you ever thought of how embarrassing it might be for him? I would never embarrass him. Are you in love with him? I didn't say I was. Now, don't be upset. I'm not accusing you of anything. Let's talk about this calm. I can't talk about it calmly. Please let me go home. Well, I seem to have stirred something up. I'm so sorry. I didn't I'm mean... I'm going to... home. Please forgive me. 
The upshot of Kay's careless cruelty is that Barbara finds herself humiliated. Stephen is furious and decides to go after Barbara in order to mend her feelings. He meets her late at night by a river where the sounds of the water beyond them drown out what he's actually saying to her. And just like that, Barbara is suddenly gone. Vanished. Stephen. Hello, Kay. This is Mr. Vining, Barbara's father. How do you do? I came to fetch my daughter. Isn't she home? No. She must be. I assure you. Did you see her when you were out? No. Is she so elusive? Okay, please. Is there something you know that I don't? I'm afraid she's in love with my husband. You can't be taking this seriously. She's a child. I'm suddenly very anxious about her. When you were out just now, Mr. Barlow, were you with my daughter? Has she run away? If so, why? Or has Stephen done something terrible? Was the relationship between he and Barbara something more than professional after all? Well, that's certainly the opinion of the town, and in particular, Barbara's aunt, played by Pamela Brown. My niece was the great love of his life. It's ended in tragedy because you were too small to see it. They've been lovers for months. Finally, it reached the stage when her life has had to be sacrificed. Whether by her own hands or his, we don't know yet. You see, I'm the only one who really knew Barbara, really understood her. I live in the same house with my brother and his wife. I knew what was going on. Must sound like I've spoiled half the film for you. I can assure you that I haven't. This is merely the first act. You still have two very gripping, very taut acts of storytelling to come in which every character has their secrets slowly revealed. I went into this absolutely cold, knew nothing about it, and I was utterly spellbound. As well, this is a film you'll have a thousand theories about before the truth is revealed. I have to say, some of the wild hypotheses I came up with were more interesting and inventive than the actual resolution we get. But that's only because my mind is a dark, dark place, I think. Interestingly, Jean Tierney gets top billing here, and while she is a pivotal player in the story, I do think you'll be disappointed if you go in expecting a Jean Tierney vehicle. The story really belongs to Leo Gen and his embattled teacher. Wisely, the film does enough to convince you of his guilt and his innocence, so while you do feel for the guy, you're also strangely willing to keep him at arm's length. There's also stellar support from the likes of Megs Jenkins as Barbara's mother, who becomes hopelessly addicted to drugs in order to numb the pain of her missing child. Walter Fitzgerald as Barbara's frantic father, who finds his reason being torn to pieces as he begins to realise that something blood-curdling has happened to his child. Pamela Brown is also fantastic as the dotty aunt with a skeleton or twelve in her closet, and further down you have Nanette Newman as a schoolgirl who swears blind that there was more to the affair, Thora Hurd as the faithful servant in the Barlow household, and Michael Horden as the school's headmaster who himself faces some terrible decisions. It's a marvellous thriller, but more than that, it's also a good study in doubt. It's about the ways in which people can change when apprehension rears its head. It's about the primal things that humans become when one of their number is suspected. And it's also a tense thriller that'll have you guessing until the very final curtain.
That's 1953's Personal Affair. I cannot recommend it enough, but do make sure you go in cold. The less you know, the better. On to something truly diabolical now. Do you remember when many episodes ago I told you all about 1933's The Silver Cord? The unbelievably queasy pre-code shocker that tells the story of a mother who falls in romantic love with her own sons and does all she can to break up their relationships. It was all kinds of yikes, especially since the script actually called for the mother to declare her forbidden passion for her children and also contains a hideously awkward scene in which she kisses her son full on. I'd never seen anything like it in classic cinema before. That was until this week when I watched Double Door from 1934, which carries the sensational tagline, the play that made Broadway gasp. And you could definitely see why. Here's a clip. I am making a new will, Ned. All of this care is to go to the list of hospitals mentioned in the old will. You're not leaving Rip out altogether? Just that. I thought you were very fond of him. I was. But he's changed. But my dear Miss Victoria... Will you do it, or shall I get someone else? Now, you failed me thus far. I sent you to her to buy a lot. She wouldn't be bought off. She loves him. Get me that new will. My dear Miss Victoria... Tonight. We are in the gloomy, stately mansion home of the Van Brett family, a younger brother, Rip and his two elder sisters, Caroline and Victoria. It's Rip's wedding day. He's marrying the lovely young Anne Darrow. No relation to the King Kong, Anne Darrow. And the world is busy rejoicing, all that is, except for his eldest sister, Victoria, whose incestuous obsession with her young brother is spiralling dangerously out of control. I fought her down long before I asked you to marry me. I was a coward. Oh, Rip. Rip, don't say that. Listen to me. You think you know me. Well, I'm going to tell you some things you don't know. My mother died when I was born. Have you ever thought what my childhood was like here in this haunted house? For the first seven years of my life, I slept in that big room on the third floor. Victoria brought me up. I seldom saw my father. She used him as a club over me. When I was seven, he died. The day of his funeral, Victoria led me down to the drawing room. took my hand and made me put it in his cold hand. And there she made me promise to keep him in mind always and to do all the things he'd always wanted me to do. Most of them she made up because it pleased her. I know that now. She told me he was able to watch me from the place he'd gone. After that, she took me into her room to sleep. I had a bed at the foot of hers. As the matriarch of the family, Victoria pulls all the strings, including the purse strings. When Rip refuses to call off the wedding to Anne, Victoria uses every insidious, menacing tool at her disposal to wreak havoc upon the newlyweds, from financial ruin to undermining Rip's faith in his new bride. And when none of those ploys work, Victoria gets really inventive. It just so happens that hidden away in her room is a soundproof vault just big enough to hide a person should she want them out of the way. I'm going to show you my treasure room. My father built this soundproof room 
so he could sleep in peace. He sat in there for over a year. He died in there. Now I use it to store my valuables. I'll show you. There are three steps. Now, I never in my life imagined that I would ever use this sentence, but here we go. This makes a marvellous companion piece to the silver cord. The whole incest angle is far more subtle here than it was in the silver cord. Here it's hinted at, but it's never explicitly stated. Apparently, the play upon which this was based was far more open about Victoria's unhealthy desires. This film does reel it in, but it makes up for the diluted motivations by turning the wackyometer up to 11 on Victoria. She's played by Mary Morris, who was something of a stage legend and whose only screen appearance was this movie. She is terrifying from the off, and I do mean the off. The opening credits to this film are some of the most sinister ever. They truly belong in a horror movie. Between credits cards, the camera flashes to ever-nearing images of Victoria's malevolent glare and its blood-curdling stuff. Caroline, the second sister, is played by Anne Revere, and for my money, she's as equally magnetic as Mary Morris. I won't spoil any of the plot points for you, but there are several scenes between the two sisters that will have you gnawing your nails down to the knuckle. It's sickeningly tense at times. Anne, the film's heroine, is played by Evelyn Venable, and she's lovely. She projects that real sense of vitality and freshness to the dour surroundings of the mansion. And even if you've never heard the name of Evelyn Venable before, then you will know her voice and her face. She provided the voice and the motion capture for the Blue Fairy in Disney's Pinocchio. And she's also the model used as Columbia in the Columbia logo. Trivia aside though, Double Door is a truly hypnotic horror thriller. The central premise is ghastly and more than enough to keep you glued to the action. But aside from the queasy villainy of Victoria, it's quite simply a well-plotted, well-executed thriller about obsession with a world-class villain that'll have you booing and hissing all the way to the finale. And may I say that when you enter that final 15 minutes, make sure you take the phone off the hook because the climax is something quite extraordinary. No wonder they called it the play that made Broadway gasp. I have a feeling it may induce the same reaction in you. If you like the gothic chills of Rebecca, if you're kept wrapped by the villainy in Gaslight, and if you can't resist the forbidden fascination of films like The Silver Cord, then 1934's Double Door is the film you need in your life. It's really quite something. Lastly, yet another moral quandary to twist that reason of yours and perfect November viewing. 1946's Night Editor, starring William Gargan, Janice Carter and Jeff Donnell. This was based on a radio anthology series called Believe It or Not, Night Editor. That series starred Hal Burdick as the editor of a paper who each week would read out a listener request for a story and tell them a fictional tale that had apparently happened during his time on the paper. It was quite wonderful. Sometimes you got a love triangle. Sometimes you got a thriller. Sometimes you got a murder mystery. Occasionally, you even got a ghost story. In 1946, Columbia decided to adapt the series for the screen. Universal had taken Inner Sanctum to the screen as an anthology show. Columbia had already found success by bringing The Whistler to screens as an anthology show. And so they dipped their toe once more with Night Editor. 
Unfortunately, this first entry wasn't enough of a hit to convince them that it was worth continuing, so this was the one and only outing, which is a shame because it's really rather good. The story opens in much the same way as the radio series, in that the editor in a newsroom, hoping to lift the spirits of one of his reporters who's having some personal troubles, tells the story of a man who once had similar woes. The guy's digging his own grave. Yeah, it happens that way. The guy will make a mistake, then he'll get in deeper and deeper, and first thing you know, a mountain falls on him. Remember Tony Cochran? Sure you remember Tony. You ought to. You covered the case with me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, during Prohibition. Mm. Sure, I remember. How could I forget? Tony Cochran, there was a guy that loved his home, his wife, and his kid. How he loved his kid. We follow Detective Cochran, played by William Gargan, a married cop with a young son who's been carrying on a love affair with haughty socialite Jill Merrill, played by Janice Carter. The guilt over this affair has been driving Cochran mad with remorse, and yet he can't seem to break away. One night, while canoodling in the car with Jill, the pair spot a murder taking place. A young girl is bludgeoned to death by a man as she screams. Cochran instantly springs into action, but is frozen to the spot when Jill reminds him that if he brings the guy in, it'll mean that their affair is made public. Tell me no! Tell me no! Your wife, she'll leave you. You'll lose the kid. You, uh, working late tonight? Out again tonight? Out again tonight? Maybe you won't come back on Georgie's Before long, the police begin their investigation into the murder, and in no time at all, a suspect is brought in and successfully prosecuted for the murder. But Cochrane knows that the man is innocent. Will he sacrifice his family, his career, and his own sanity in order to save this helpless stranger? And does Jill have an agenda of her own? He killed her. Beat her brains out with a tire iron. He got away. You're not going to say anything, Tony. Let the cops find out for themselves. I let him get away. You had to, Tony, for me and for you, too. You don't get it. She's just a kid in there. He killed her. I'm a cop. I didn't even try to stop him. Tony, I want to see her. I want to see her, Tony. Shut up. I want to look at her. Shut up. I want to look at her. I actually wish I could give you more of an idea about what exactly happens in this film. I think the description I've given you might lead you to believe that this is a far more generic film than it actually is, but I daren't spoil any of the plot twists for you. Now, this film is not very well reviewed. I think it holds about a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I find absolutely baffling. It's tense, it's tight. I was crawling with nerves throughout due to the dramatic whirlpool at the centre of the tale, and each scene seems to compound the pressure in all sorts of unexpected ways. In short, this little B-movie has no right to be as good as it is. It is immaculate. Very much like Double Door, this is a film you feel terrible for enjoying, but you cannot tear your eyes away. William Gargan as Cochrane does a marvellous job of conveying that tortured soul throughout. He begins filled with guilt and ends the movie. Well, I can't even tell you how things end because it'll totally kill your enjoyment if I do. Special props to Janice Carter as Mrs. Merrill, who just delights in her own villainy so much that she can't help but grin whenever she does something else wicked. 
And let me tell you, Jill Merrill really is one of the most cunning, most devilish, most memorable villains of film noir. I find it incredible that she isn't on a whole host of noir villain top 10 lists. Also, I just adored Paul E. Burns as Cochrane's partner, Lieutenant Oli, who starts the film as this kind of comic bumbler, but who ends the thing as the wisest of them all. Now, here's the part of the review where I lay out the negatives, but in all honesty, I can't find many faults. You can't possibly split hairs when it comes to a 67-minute thriller filled with the kind of attention to detail and focus on dramatic tension as this. If you search this film up and find yourselves wary because of the negative reviews, then I urge you to see past that and give the thing a whirl. You'll be very surprised at how good this is and how amazing the villain is. Well, to celebrate the fact that Night Editor has made its debut on the show at last, how's about we hear some of the original show that inspired the movie? Night Editor episodes are only about 14 minutes long, so we'll go not once, not twice, but three times to the desk of Hal Burdick, who incidentally plays all of the parts, for a triple bill of Night Editor stories and a more varied trio of stories you could not find beneath one umbrella. First up, we'll hear a story entitled Smoke Rings, then something slightly more dramatic in Four Later Delivery, and finally onto a blood-chilling drama entitled Strange Judgment, three outings from the desk of Hal Burdick, night editor. And I'll see you afterwards. Edwards, the coffee with the extra flavor left brings you Night Editor. Once again, the press is roll for another story from the night editor's office as Hal Burdick tells us his tensely dramatic yarn about Manny Griffin's present to police lieutenant Pat Cameron, a story titled Smoke Ring. Manny's present was to be a box of expensive cigars, much finer than the brand Pat had smoked for years. But the box was to contain only the top layer, and under it, fashioned so that the removal of any cigar from the top layer would explode it, was Manny's gift in hated remembrance for those years in the big house that Pat Cameron had arranged for him. Friends, I could tell you many things about Edwards' coffee, about its flavor, how it's blended and roasted under Mr. Dwight Edwards' own personal formula. Yes, just why it gives you an extra flavor lift. But I could never really tell you just how delicious it is, how satisfying only you can discover that when you first taste that rich flavor in the cup. And so, I'd like to invite you to try Edward's coffee. To see for yourself what an exceptional coffee it is. Believe me, you'll find that it does give you an extra flavor lift. Buy a pound, won't you? Edward's coffee is featured at all Safeway stores. Well, it's that mid-evening hour when the newsroom pressure slacks off a little between editions and most of the staff have slipped out for a quick cup of coffee before taking up the night's work again. Al and Bobby are in their favorite corner booth down in the corner lunchroom, and Bobby is saying... Some good local stories in the paper tonight, Hal. Mm, yeah. Hey, how'd you like that feature yarn on the retirement of Police Captain Mackey? Yeah, there was a good job of reporting. Yeah, remind me to write a memo to the man on the police beat, giving him a little pat on the back. Huh? Okay, and he'll sure appreciate it, too. Yeah... I read that story with a lot of interest, Bobby. Reminded me of the time, good many years ago, when Lieutenant Pat Cameron retired from the force in a city where I was covering the police run. Though, of course, uh, that yarn had the added feature of a bomb explosion mixed up in it. Huh? 
bomb explosion? Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that sounds as though they gave the lieutenant a real send-off. <laughs> well, it made quite an exciting mystery story. Yeah, it was several days before we got all the facts put together. Hey, tell me more about this, Hal. Mm, well, the retirement of Pat Cameron after more than 40 years in the department was an event that attracted a lot of attention, Bobby. For during those years, he had become one of the best-known figures on the force. Best known and, by most people, best loved. They were the ones who knew him as the kindliest man you'd hope to meet. Who'd suddenly show up with a basket of groceries when it was most needed. Who'd pick up some youngster off the street and take him in for a new pair of shoes. Or see that a doctor showed up at the right moment. There were those who feared him and respected his two big fists from the days when he walked a beat as a harness copper in the lower end of town. And there was a third class that hated him. The crooks he'd put behind bars for their crimes. And among them was Manny Griffin, who sent Pat Cameron a present on the day the big lieutenant said farewell to the force. It was there on Pat's desk in his flower-banked office, resting innocently among the many gifts from people great and small. Only, <laughs> there was nothing innocent about Manny's present. During his years in the prison to which Pat Cameron had sent him, Manny had spent long hours planning his gift... When he finished his sentence, he came back to town secretly and kept away from all contacts with old pals, so there'd be nothing to tie him up with what he was planning to do. The news of Pat's coming retirement tied in nicely with his scheme, and Manny lost no time getting busy on it. His present was to be a box of expensive cigars, much finer than the brand Pat had smoked for years, but the box was to contain only the top layer. Through the underside of the layer was threaded a fine wire. It ran down to the place where the bottom layer should have been, and there, Manny installed a curious device, neatly arranged so that when any one of the top cigars was lifted out of place, there would be an explosion that would settle his accounting with Pat Cameron for all time. When it was finished, Manny Griffin's twisted brain held only one regret, that he didn't dare keep the bottom layer for himself. Manny liked cigars too, but he must take no chance that even a cigar of the same make should be found on him. It hurt to do it, but he burned them, then he wrapped his gift in a neat package and mailed it to Cameron to arrive on the day of his retirement. And for the rest, he could sit back and await the good news that Lieutenant Pat Cameron had been killed in a mysterious bomb explosion. The final hand clasp had been given, the last caller had departed, and Pat stood looking down at the desk laden with expressions of goodwill. One of the younger officers who'd remained in the room with him spoke. Yeah, what are you going to do with all the loot, Pat? Well, I was just thinking you might have somebody take all those flowers to the city emergency hospital. They'd be wasted in my bachelor dickens. Yeah, then uh, have the night janitor put the other things in a big box, and maybe one of the prowler crews could drop it off at my place. His hand reached out to pick up a package. Now, oh, well, there's one I haven't opened. He tore the outer wrappings away. Well, now, it's a box of fine cigars. <laughs> Better than my usual brand. No card on it. It's inside, maybe. He opened the top lid, across which, with cunning care, Manny had replaced the unbroken tax stamps. <laughs> no card inside, either. It's funny. Well, whoever sent him sure knew how to pick good ones. Here, have one, Joe. Uh, no thanks, Pat. Oh, go on, take one. His fingers reached down to pick one from the top layer, but his companion reached out to stop him. No, 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 Pat, no. You save them for your homework. You're going to have time to enjoy a good cigar now. Yeah, sure, you take them along with you tonight, and I'll have the rest of the presents over to your house as soon as we can get them packed. With Manny's gift under his arm, the lieutenant left the building and headed for a little side street restaurant where they made beef stew just to his liking. Yes, sir, <clears throat> he'd take plenty of time at dinner tonight. 
And afterward, top it off with a second cup of coffee and one of his gift cigars. As befitted a man on the eve of the years of well-earned rest ahead of him. But a block from the restaurant, he stopped. While he was in the neighborhood, why not look in on Frank Lavenger? Poor guy. Hurt in a factory accident two years before. Wheelchair cripple ever since. Somehow, Mrs. Lavenger kept a roof over their heads, though more than once it was Big Pat Cameron who filled the empty cupboard. He chatted with Frank and his wife for a few minutes, telling them about the reception in his office that afternoon. Then, as he stood up to leave, he did one of those spontaneously generous things that were as much a part of him as his two big hands. From under his arm, he took Manny Griffin's present and held it out toward the wasted figure in the chair. I, uh, I'd like uh, you to have a share in all the good things that happened to me today, Frankie Milan. Yeah, here. Uh, a box of cigars. Well, mighty fine ones, too. Yeah, from some uh, <laughs> unknown admirer. I can't think of anybody I'd rather have smoke them up for me. Well, that's uh, good of you, Lieutenant. I, I can't afford cigars anymore, but... Oh, I don't feel right about taking one of your presents and... Go on, go on, take them. <laughs> They're too fancy for me, anyway. The man in the chair opened the lid, held out the box. Well, uh, uh, at least uh, have one with me, Lieutenant. He started to remove one, but Cameron reached out to close the box. No, 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 not a bit of it. Every cigar in that box is for you, Frank. Yep. Well, got to be on my way now. I'll be dropping in again soon. When the door closed behind him... Mrs. Lavenger's hand brushed across her faded eyes. Wasn't that just like the lieutenant? Sharing his presence with you? Bless his generous heart. Yeah, best friend we ever had, Agnes. Why, <laughs> I haven't tasted a cigar like that in years. He opened the lid again, looked down at the neatly packed top layer. Yeah, I guess I'll try one now. His thin hand moved toward the layer, fingertips closing on the end of one of the cigars. It rested there for a moment. Then... No, I ain't going to do it. You're not going to smoke one. Well, why not? He closed the lid again. Because tain't fair, me being the only one to enjoy Lieutenant Cameron's present. And I'll tell you what we're going to do. Now, you take him down to the Dutchman's place on the corner. He ought to give you three, maybe four dollars for him. We need money more than we do fancy cigars. And, and the lieutenant would understand. Sure, he'd be glad for you to share his present. You take him down there right now. Mr. Ruger, the shopkeeper, looked down at the box that Mrs. Lavenger put on the counter. He picked it up, opened the lid, nodded. Yeah, yeah fine, of course they are. But I tell you, three dollars is the best I could offer you. Oh, worth much more they are, but I don't have so much sale for high-class goods like those. Maybe if I sell them a little cheaper, I, I get my money back that way, huh? As the woman left the store, the old fellow picked up the box again, sniffing the delicate aroma of the tobacco. It had been a long time since he'd smoked perfectos such as those. Price had been a bargain. Yeah, there was no reason why he shouldn't enjoy just one of them. His fingers touched the layer. But no, not now. After dinner would be the time. He was preparing it in his living rooms back of the store when Mrs. Lavenger came in. Not many customers this time of night. Have dinner first, then lock up and have time really to enjoy his smoke. He smiled at the thought of it and went on back to his tiny kitchen... The box of cigars still open on the counter. In the restaurant, Pat Cameron was just finishing his steaming plate of beef stew when he heard the distant explosion. By the time he located it and reached the store, the beat patrolman was already there and had put in a call to headquarters. They kept the crowd back until prowler cars screamed up with members of the bomb squad. Pat barked orders as they pushed their way into the wrecked interior of the little shop. Now don't touch that body till the coroner gets here, boys. Then we really get to work. 
One of the detectives shook his head slowly. Yeah, it looks like a tough case, Pat. Things are pretty well scattered. Yeah. Well, have one of the boys see if they can find out anything from that crowd outside. For several minutes, they moved cautiously around the litter of broken glass on the floor, the lieutenant stopping to look down at the twisted figure in one corner. Then the outside man was joining them again. Well, I found an eyewitness, Lieutenant. Yeah, who is it? Kid. He was across the street. Yeah, he uh, saw a man sneak up along the window of the shop and stand there peeking in. He looked around to see if anybody was watching, but didn't see the boy who was in the doorway. And, of course, there was no one in the shop because Ruger was out back having his dinner. Well, all of a sudden, this guy darts into the store. Kid sees him reach out to grab a handful of cigars out of a box on the counter and does a flash and a roar, and <laughs> that's all there is to it. The lieutenant's eyes strayed to the figure on the floor once again. Well, I'm not surprised that Manny Griffin was up to his old tricks, stealing things off counters. <laughs> He'd only been out of the big house a few days after serving a term for such as that. But that still doesn't account for his being blown up by a bomb. You get it, Ruger? The white-faced old shopkeeper shook his head in bewilderment. And Pat Cameron went on. <laughs> Whatever it was... I'll say his last smoke was a red-hot one. And maybe... Maybe in some mysterious way, Manny had it coming to him. Who knows? Friends, good coffee begins in the bean. But the flavor? Ah, that has to be developed by those who really know the art of blending and roasting. Now, take Edwards' coffee. Every pound is specially blended and roasted according to Mr. Dwight Edwards' own personal formula, the careful custom way. Nothing is left to chance. Only the choice coffee beans are selected for the exclusive Edwards blend, chosen for size, shape, and color. Then blended in small batches, not by weight, but by flavor. Every pound is roasted by the modern heated air thermalo process, which brings out the full rich goodness in the bean, then immediately ground and vacuum-packed to bring all the flavor to you at peak freshness. Yes, Edward's coffee is really delicious. Truly the coffee with the extra flavor lift. If you'll just try a pound, I'm sure you'll find it's outstanding coffee. Your money refunded if you don't thoroughly enjoy it. Edward's coffee is featured at all Safeway stores. Now, Hal, uh, what's the news from the night editor's office about next week's yarn? George Alden was a man who'd lived his life in the hill country. And when sickness cooped him up in a city apartment for a few weeks, it was almost more than he could take. Then, one morning, autumn came to the city, bringing him the taste and feel and smell of the open country. It tempted him out of doors, and into a strange and exciting adventure that I'll relate to you in my story, Autumn Fever, when we meet in the newsroom next week. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Be sure to listen next week at the same time when the roar of the presses brings us another dramatic yarn written and told by your night editor, Hal Burdick. This is Bill Baldwin saying good night for Edwards Coffee. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Edwards, the coffee with the extra flavor left brings you Night Editor. Again, the presses roll to bring us Hal Burdick and another night editor story. And tonight he's going to retell a story that listeners everywhere have asked him to repeat. His story of a letter written by a father to his son overseas titled, For Later Delivery. I am writing to you tonight because there are some things I have to say. And putting them down like this seems the best way to get them into words. 
the things that should have been said so long ago, the things a father sometimes forgets to tell his boy, what having you for a son meant to me, and how sorry I am for the times I failed you. Friends, I think you'll agree that when you buy coffee, what you're really buying is coffee enjoyment. The pleasure that comes from coffee with a full, rich flavor. Now, that's why I'd like to invite you to try a pound of Edwards coffee. Because Edwards coffee, make no mistake, gives you an extra flavor lift. It is a rich, full-flavored coffee. An exclusive blend of Latin America's choicest coffees, blended and roasted in a special way. According to Mr. Dwight Edwards' own personal formula. Yes, you'll find that every pound of Edwards coffee gives you coffee enjoyment at its best. So try a pound, won't you? If you're not thoroughly satisfied, your money refunded. Edwards Coffee is featured at all Safeway stores. Well, Jane Holmes, the food editor, has been in Hal's office tonight discussing some feature ideas for her daily page. But a moment ago, Bobby saw them leave the newsroom. <laughs> he guessed what was happening, and as soon as he could get free from his desk, Bobby headed down the corridor to the food department kitchen, and there he... Uh-huh, just as I thought. Having coffee without saying a word to me about it. Uh oh, we might have known you'd show up sooner or later. Hmm. When the Edwards coffee is being served, I'll be there as sooner as I can get there. <laughs> uh, shall we let him stay, Hal? <laughs> oh, I guess so, Jane. Might as well be charitable. Though he may not want to stay. And why not? Well, Hal has a letter that he's going to read to me. That's <laughs> yeah, one I read to you, Bobby. Oh, a couple of years ago. Say, if it's the letter I think it is, the one the father wrote to his son in the army and left with Hal. For a later delivery, you couldn't bribe me to leave. Well, that's the one, buddy. And you're to be a very quiet young man while he reads it. You won't hear a sound out of me. <laughs> All right, Al. Well, as I told you, Jane, this isn't a story. It's, well, just a letter. But one that someday will mean a lot to a certain young fellow when I hand it over to him. A letter that may help him to see life a little clearer. I know it did that for me when I read it, as the father told me I might. Anyway, this is it. The letter that was left with me for later delivery. My dear son, I am especially conscious of the stillness in my den tonight. Perhaps it's because so many, many nights have passed without you and your gang crashing open the door to the garden and hurrying by me as I sat at my typewriter on your way to the kitchen in search of whatever food the refrigerator might contain. Perhaps it's because a parade of years has marched by since you used to crash that same door as a little fellow, and in a quick passing, why, no longer than it took to say, Hi, Dad. Leave behind you a shambles of cast-off windbreaker, far-flung BB shot, scattered rugs, that I was forever calling you back to set the rights again. Or perhaps it's because of the telegram. However it is, tonight is terribly still. Outside, the stars are close and brittle. Sharp point stars, you used to call them on winter nights. Gray fog is sliding over the ridge of distant hills, and there's the spice of eucalyptus in the air. It seems important to tell you all that, because it's your kind of night. I'm writing you tonight because there are some things I have to say, and putting them down like this seems to be the best way to get them into words. The things that should have been said so long ago, the things a father sometimes forgets to tell his son. Oh, I don't mean the facts of life or fold your napkin or stand when a lady comes into the room. I'm thinking of the something else I never quite got into words. What 
having you for a son really meant to me. And how sorry I am for the times I failed you. It's funny. When you were born and I held you in my arms that first time, I thought I was going to tell you all that when you grew up. I was so proud that night that Mother had given me a son that I meant always to let you see my pride in you from that time on. I meant you should always know how glad I was for you that I'd never failed you. How weak it seems now to say, I never meant to. Why didn't I tell you how proud I was that time you hung a mouse on the toughy in kindergarten because he broke a little girl's soap bubble pipe? I said the fatherly things to you about fighting in public and acting like a ruffian. Later, I bragged to your mother that you were a chip off the old block and recounted the story of a hallway scrap that got me kicked out of school for a time. But I never got around to telling you. Then there was the time you broke the big window in the neighbor's house with the first professional baseball I bought you. You played square and told me about it the minute I got home that night. You couldn't know that I was especially tired, that my nerves were like fiddle strings. You said, I'll earn the money to pay for it, Dad. And I answered, huh, you bet you will. I didn't give you that baseball to go around smashing expensive windows. If you can't be careful with it, I'll have to take it away from you. I paid for the window. And through a long period of months, you denied yourself every little pleasure to save nickels and dimes to pay me back. And when the last of it was paid, I didn't tell you how proud I was that you'd met an obligation. I said, eh, now, let that be a lesson to you to be careful the next time. I said that to you, the son who meant so much to me. And maybe I lost some little part of you in saying it. I didn't tell you. And tonight, I wish so lonesomely that I had. I could set down a hundred such incidents writing you tonight. The times when you looked at me with that something in your eyes that said, Can't we go havers on this one, Dad? And I made you take the full responsibility because I thought you should. The times I failed you. But my mind jumps ahead to the spring of 1941 when you wrote me from college saying you wanted to apply for an appointment as a cadet flyer. You didn't say anything more about it after you got my reply. The words of that letter must have looked very cold to you when you read it. All about education coming first, your duty to your mother and me. You didn't answer because... because the years had taught you it was no use. You came home unexpectedly a few weeks later. You cringed a little when I demanded gruffly what you were doing away from college. And then you drew yourself up very straight and tall and saluted me. I asked what that meant. And you held out the paper that told of your appointment as a cadet in an army flying school. You couldn't know it was hurt pride that made me say what I did about your taking such an important step without consulting me further. You couldn't know that inside me there was a very different pride. Pride in you for doing it. You only heard me say the things about not being dutiful toward your parents. Once again, I hadn't gone havers with you. Once again, I'd failed you. I tried to make it up by showing interest in your progress as a flyer, your graduation to a lieutenancy. But I knew all along I was only making it up to myself, not to you. It was too late for that. Then there was that night about a month after Pearl Harbor, the night you came home on leave. We knew from your letters you were expecting to be ordered out soon, out across the Pacific where there was a war to be won. And I promised myself that while you were here, I'd tell you the things I'd failed to tell you all those times in the past. My love for you, 
the deep joy of having a son, even though I hadn't always let you see it. I meant to do it. But, well, she was with you when you came into the house that night. And there was that same look of hopeful expectancy in your eyes when you said, Dad, this is Mary, my wife. We were married two days ago. I guess you weren't surprised when I reacted as I did after all those times in the past. I was polite, but you read what was in my mind, and it hurt you. Just as you were hurt when I took breaking the window the way I did, and punching the toughie's nose, and leaving college to join up as a cadet, and all the other things. And those things I meant to tell you before you went away never were said. Tonight, the telegram came to Mary. You didn't know, of course, that we brought her here to live with us a few weeks after you went overseas. Your mother left the telegram on my desk, then hurried back upstairs. It was a long time after I read it before I could get out of my desk chair. When I did, I went out into the yard, out through the old familiar garden door, out under the brittle stars, your sharp point stars. They seemed to be the only thing in life that was real to me. And then I heard something that was real, very real, from Mary's room upstairs, a sharp little cry, like the one I heard that night when you were born. A cry calling out to me as you called to me the first night I held you in my arms. The cry of your son, my grandson. I heard it, and it was like you calling to me again. And so I came back in to write this letter, to say the things I always meant to say, even though they come too late. Maybe, maybe tonight you're looking down at me from up there among your sharp point stars. Maybe you heard that little cry and you're saying, it's all right, Dad. I'll understand if you'll just promise me this, that you'll go havers with me this time in him. That you'll remember to say the things to him you didn't say to me, as I had meant to say them if I ever had a son. Do that. And we'll call it square. And that's why I'm writing this letter you'll never see. This letter I'll have put into your son's hands someday. To thank you for giving me a, a second chance and to make you that promise. Good night, my son. Your dad. Friends, just as a good story gives you a real lift at the end, so a cup of good coffee should give you a grand feeling of satisfaction. You've a right to expect that. And believe me, with Edward's coffee, you not only can expect it, you get it. Yes, a delicious extra flavor lift. That's because Edward's coffee is blended and roasted under Mr. Dwight Edwards' personal formula with the care and skill which comes only from an expert knowledge of fine coffees. Well, just to show you, the coffee beans selected for the exclusive Edwards blend are actually chosen for size, shape, and color. They're blended only in small batches, then roasted by the controlled thermal process, which develops the full natural flavor and aroma. And note this, 
Just when the roast comes to the point of golden brown perfection, when flavor's at its very finest, then every pound's immediately ground and vacuum-packed to capture all the fresh, rich flavor. Try a pound of Edwards Coffee. If you don't thoroughly enjoy its extra flavor lift, your money refunded. Edwards Coffee is featured at all Safeway stores. Well, I know all of us enjoyed the retelling of tonight's appealing story, Hal. What's ahead for us next week? Well, we're going in for some smiles in the humorous story of the night Horace Twining's curiosity led him into trying his hand at throwing a boomerang and the amazing series of developments that followed. It's titled, Boomerangs Do Come Back. And I hope you'll all join us for a few smiles when I tell it next week at this same time. Good night. Be sure to listen at this same time next week when the roar of the presses brings us Hal Burdick in another original Night Editor yarn. This is Bill Baldwin saying good night for Edwards Coffee. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Edwards, the coffee with the extra flavor left brings you Night Editor. The press is roll for another of Hal Burdick's dramatic yarns from the newsroom. Tonight, a spine-tingling story of the weird forces that brought a killer to the end of his trail, titled Strange Judgment. Tug Stanley's awakening was sudden and startling. A blinding light was stabbing in his eyes, and somewhere close there were voices. He sat up, ripping the gun from the shoulder holster. But the light that blazed down on him was held by no human hand. Friends, you've made coffee too often not to know that for a really good cup of coffee, you need to use not only the right blend, but also the right grind. And that's why you'll be glad to know that now you can get Edwards Coffee, the coffee with the extra flavor lift, not only in the regular and drip grinds, but also in a new pulverized grind. Of course, Edwards Pulverized Grind was made specially for you folks who use Silex or other glass vacuum coffee makers. But in every grind, regular, drip, or pulverized, Edwards Coffee is made for people who know and enjoy real coffee satisfaction. Yes, Edwards Coffee is specially prepared from choicest Latin American coffee beans, specially blended in small batches, roasted by the thermal process, all under Mr. Dwight Edwards' own personal supervision to give you finer, richer coffee. Coffee with an extra flavor lift. Try Edwards Coffee, friends. If you don't find a delicious extra flavor lift in every cup, your money refunded. Edwards Coffee is featured at all Safeway stores. Now, this has been a very busy evening in the newsroom with plenty of stories breaking, and for a time it looked as though Hal and Bobby wouldn't get out for their mid-evening cup of coffee. But with one of the earlier editions put to bed, they have found a few minutes to brew their own down in the food editor's kitchen, and now... So the boss is going to sneak away for a couple of days bird hunting, huh? Mm-hmm, Bobby. Yeah, this time tomorrow night, I'll be up in Oak River Valley. Oak River Valley? Mm-hmm. My remembrance of that country is that it's one of the hottest spots in the world. <laughs> well, hardly holds that record. And gets plenty warm in the summertime, though. Plenty warm. Mm. Aren't you being just a little conservative, Hal? <laughs> well, maybe I am. I always think of it as the place where the sun sat in judgment on Tug Stanley. The sun sat... What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, here, here. Uh, you pour me another cup of that good Edwards coffee, and I'll tell you. Yeah, it was, uh, was quite a yarn, Bobby. There you are. All right, now let's hear it. Well, it seemed everything went wrong the afternoon Tug held up the Oak River Bank, in spite of his careful planning. 
But the climax came when he hit for the street in his getaway car. Another car was double-parked alongside his, blocking it in. The alarm was out. He had no time to waste. Then he saw a young fellow coming out of a farm machinery place, putting a bag of tools in the car. That would have saved the day for Tug if the fellow hadn't made a dive for him as Tug climbed in on the driver's side. Tug didn't argue. He let him have it. But again, bad luck dogged him. The guy fell sprawling across the seat. No time to climb out and drag him back to the sidewalk. Pull him on into the car. Get going. Those men running into the street behind him with guns. They weren't playing for marbles. For the next hour, Tug played hide-and-seek with his pursuit, finally cutting down a wood road to a thick cover of brush where he settled back to think out his next move. To think. How could he think with that guy beside him moaning and groaning, pleading piteously for water? Water? (laughs) What he ought to give him was another slug of lead. For that matter, he wouldn't mind a drink of water himself. Mouth felt like cotton. And it couldn't be very far down through the woods to the river. While he was waiting? Why not? On the bank of the river, all of Tug's plans changed. An old dugout canoe was lodged in some driftwood against the bank. Leave the car and the wounded man where they were. Cross the river in the canoe. Set it adrift. Take the money out of the bag. Leave the bag in the dugout. When they found it further downstream, it would throw the cops completely off his trail. For Tug wouldn't have gone that way. Oh, no. He'd be hiding somewhere close by. Why, sure. That was it. The night did little to cool off the far corner of the haymow in the big barn to which Tug finally made his way. But that was all right. He could do without air conditioning. While the cops were looking for him a long way from here, he was snug and secure in the last place they'd expect him to be. He could stay right here until the next night. By then, the search would have died down, be safe to move on. Tug relaxed into the musty softness of the hay and fell asleep. His awakening was sudden and startling. A blinding light was stabbing at his eyes, and somewhere there were voices. He sat up, ripping the gun from the shoulder holster. Then, relaxed with a sharp gasp of relief. That light wasn't from a copper's torch. It was sunshine streaming through a crack between the boards. And the voices, why, they were coming from down in the barnyard. Yeah, yeah, they found the dugout four miles down the river. Figure he left it there and picked up a ride on the highway. He's a long ways from these parts by now. And you uh, say young Hanson is dead when they found him? Yeah, poor guy. Well, I gotta head on back town, but sheriff says it won't hurt for you farmers to keep a gun handy. The voices died away as the men walked on out to the road, and Tug settled back in his nest of hay once more. From here on, it ought to be clear sailing. Why, just a waiting game until nightfall. The first couple of hours weren't so bad. He wanted a smoke terribly, but no chance of that with all this hay dry as tinder around him. And he mustn't run the risk of moving around either. Just have to lie there and take it. (laughs) And for the better than 10,000 in bills tucked inside his shirt, he could take a lot. At it. Was getting hotter, though. Stuffed up there in a dusty pile of hay right under a barn roof. Sun was probably getting straight overhead. He couldn't even take off his coat. Those spears of hay jabbed at him like needles when he tried it. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be tough. Tougher than he figured. Bad enough to just lie there with nothing to make the time pass, but... Oh, boy, that heat. And the dust. You can see it in the streaks of sunlight. Feel it in your nose when you breathe. Taste it. Boy, what he wouldn't give for a good swig of water right now. Water. (laughs) That reminded him of the guy last night, begging for water, pleading with him, looking up at him with his eyes all glazy. So he died, huh? Well, they weren't going to catch him and burn him for it. Not Tug Stanley. Tug Stanley was a smart guy. Not going to burn him for it. Burn him. They didn't know it. They were coming close to it right now. Way that sun was beating down on the roof. (sighs) Move over closer to those cracks in the boards. Get a little fresh air that way, maybe. Place was getting to be like an oven. 
And maybe he was wrong in picking this place to hide. Didn't know much about Haymouse. He was a city kid. <sighs> Believe him, he, he'd never do it again. The way that sun had moved around couldn't be much more than noon. Another ten or eleven hours of it before he dared to move. Ten or eleven hours of it before he dared to move. Ten or eleven hours. Might be roasted like a hunk of beef if he didn't pass out from thirst before that. Already getting soda's hard to swallow. Tongue felt like a wad of flannel in his mouth. And that heat. Sun must be right on the roof of the barn. Well, maybe if he tried, he could sleep some more. Forget how slow time was passing. Somewhere there was a piece of machinery running. He could hear the chug-chug of it. And that gave him an idea. Close his eyes. Count the chugging. Put himself to sleep. Yeah, right away. It made him feel drowsy. But wait. Wait, what's that other noise? Water running? Sounded like it. Water, that's what the guy in the car wanted. So what? He wanted a drink of water, too. Never wanted one so bad in his life. He'd give plenty of that dough in his shirt for one right now. And ten. Maybe eleven hours to go. Yeah, that was water running somewhere out in the barnyard. That was a pump he heard pumping water up out of a well. All cold and sparkling. Clear, fresh water. <sighs> like the creek where the city kids used to hike out of town to go swimming. It gurgled over the rocks. Just like that sound that came to him now. And you could lie down and stick your face down in it and drink. Oh, drink until you felt cool all over. Cool? Hey, was there a cool place in all the world? A place where you could get one decent breath of air? Cool air? Cool and refreshing like... Like that water? Oh, why didn't they shut off that pump? Wasn't it enough he had to lie there with the heat beating down on him till his head throbbed from the blazing agony of it? Getting so he couldn't even swallow now. Like having his throat all packed with sand. They could just have one little drink of water. Just feel the trickle of it going down his throat. Right outside. Right outside, there must be plenty of it. Cool. Fresh. Sparkling water. Tug was out of the haymow, crawling down the ladder before he realized it, babbling to himself through parched lips against the folly of the chance he was taking. Across the barn, out into the yard, stumbling blindly, madly toward that sound. Along the side of the barn, bulging eyes staring wildly around him. Oh, he was crazy to do it, but it didn't matter. Just one good drink of it and he could go back to that inferno. Calm down, see it through until night. Around the corner of the barn. Yeah, yeah, there it was. The pump chugging rhythmically, drawing water from some deep, frosty spring. Just a few more steps, that was all. A dry, croaking sound came from his throat. The water was there, but it was not for him. It was spelling over the top of the tank into which the pump was lifting it, high overhead. Spelling out in a sparkling flood that atomized into a thin, disappearing spray as it fell earthward through the sunshine. Tug raised his hands to it, trying to catch even one tiny drop, screaming at it hoarsely, shaking his fists at it in a crazed fury. And then above his own voice, he heard someone else shouting. Through bloodshot eyes, he saw a man standing in the doorway of a small harness room at the end of the barn. A rifle was gripped tightly in his two hands. Tug tore at the gun in his shoulder holster. It came free. Then the molten sunshine was slashed with crimson as the rifle spoke angrily. And Tug Stanley went down under the impact that sent a ripping pain through his shoulder. He came up out of darkness to hear voices again. And that's the killer, all right. You bet. Hey, did you call the sheriff, Dan? Yep. Yeah, he's on the way out here, son. Yes, sir. That's him. Hey, Dad. He, he must have been hiding up in the haymow. But uh, what in thunder drive him into coming out of hiding while it's still daylight? Say, I bet you I know. Yeah. When I first saw him, Dad, he came around to the end of the barn and, and stood under the water tank, looking up at the overflow and, and yelling at it like a crazy man. 
I'll bet you that, that laying up there, the heat got him. Made him so thirsty that when he heard the water gushing out, he couldn't stand it. Well, maybe so, son. A moment of silence, then... <laughs> and that certainly would be grim justice, wouldn't it? Huh? How do you mean, Dad? Tug opened his eyes as the man above him went on. If he hadn't killed Bert Hansen yesterday, there wouldn't have been any overflow coming out of the tank for him to hear and set him crazy enough to risk coming out of hiding. When Bert was shot, he was starting out here to install an automatic cutoff on the pump to keep the tank from getting so full it'd spill over. <laughs> Why, it's as if... as if even in death, Bert had trailed him until he was caught. And that was a trio of tales from the desk of night editor. Fabulous stuff and definitely worth tracking down if you have a spare moment. Well, that is all from me for this episode. Thank you for joining me today. Remember that if you'd like more of these shows, then there are over 100 bonus episodes available right now if you sign up at www.patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Similarly, if your interest has been piqued by any of the films you've heard about today, then every single one of them will be available to you from Monday if you are a patron of the shows as part of the Classic Movie Library, which now contains over 300 films instantly available for you to watch. Also remember that on November 20th and 21st, the Film Festival will be presenting two full days of Golden Age classic movie entertainment. So come along and join the fun. Public Day is Saturday, open to all. Sunday the 21st is Patron Day. Well, that is it from me then. See you at the festival if you're coming. And until I see you again, have the most marvellous time. And take super care of yourself and those you love. Be well, be safe, and bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.